Alright, hello everyone. Welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am your host, per usual. Uh, what do we got this week? Well, last night, UFC on ESPN 47. Uh, that was a card. You know, it didn't look great on paper, and, uh, you know, for the most part, wasn't great. There were some good parts, though. Um, there were some... I'll say this for that card. The stuff that was good was actually pretty darn good, so... We will get into that. We will look ahead. This coming Saturday, UFC on ABC5, headlined by uh, Josh Emmett and Ilya Taporia. That's a darn good fight. So we'll give you a full preview of that. And then news. There were some fight announcements that the UFC, I'm sure, at least in part, put out because Conor McGregor did a stupid. And we'll talk. I hate talking about Conor's stupidity, but, well, here we are. So we'll talk about that and, you know, whatever else I have written down or comes up as I'm recording. Um, all right, before we get going, first of all, thank you as always for listening. Anything you can do to help the show, like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, sharing, be that in person or over the internet. Uh, let people know about the show, point them in our direction. Now that's always helpful. So before we get into the show proper, today is Father's Day 2023, and just wanted to take a moment, because I know my audience here is mostly male. In fact, my hunch is all of you. Like, there's not a lot of you, but my hunch is all of you. Uh, I might be wrong, uh, but my hunch. Uh, certainly predominantly male. Um... Thank you to those of you who are fathers and who are good fathers. I'm going to caveat that a little bit. If you're if you're not, then, you know, do better, man. The world doesn't need more crappy fathers. The world needs good fathers. Uh, there's not enough... Um, without delving too... Without getting too much onto my theoretical high horse here, there's a lot of stuff out there in popular culture, television, movies, media, etc. that is not very kind to men. And if you let if that continues to beat its way into the sort of collective unconscious, it makes things worse. And you can argue about Hollywood and television and all that crap till you're blue in the face. It's not really going to change until Largely, market forces demand it. Though, the way things currently are going, like that, even the relationship between studio systems and the actual market is a really weird, is in a really weird place at the moment. If you want more on this, feel free to listen to Damn You Hollywood. We talk about it on occasion. Um, but more specifically here, the best way to counteract that is with good real-world examples. Uh, very little comes from especially raising, I'm going to say especially raising younger men, but for the record, like there's a reason that a giant chunk of, uh, 
women who have maladjusted issues claim to have daddy issues specifically uh, and for young men you know you do you need you need a good you need good examples of what it means to be a man in the world and whether that's a biological kid a stepkid if you're just a sort of surrogate father figure via again slightly dis uh, slightly different um, or a slight distance in biology if you're you know an uncle and you're trying to be a good example of what it means to be a man or if you're you know you volunteer in the community and you're a I don't know a scout leader or something similar like whatever it happens to be if you're out there trying to make sure that try, trying to be the best that you can be and you're trying to demonstrate what it means to be a good man then thank you the world needs more of you I've been blessed with some very wonderful male people uh, role models in my life my father both of my grandfathers uh, my maternal and paternal ones a uh, couple of really awesome uncles uh, several again because I grew up not only religious but at a time when my religious uh, my religious group was very closely tied with the Boy Scouts and my dad was actually big into scouting I had some very good scout leaders uh, I'm yeah, I'm eternally grateful to all of them and just wanted to say that here if you skipped ahead for this that of this I fair play to you I can't blame you <laughs> but it's my show and if I want to wax a little bit poetic about that then I'm going to so thank you for your indulgence all right with that out of the way let's jump into it shall we Boy, I am getting more long-winded these days all right UC and ESPN 47 main event uh, Jared Cannonier defeats Marvin Vittori via unanimous decision 249 45s 148-46. Um, so we get to that via all three judges scored the sec the second round 10-8 for Jared Cannonier. I did as well. Vittori got the first. Um, they both rocked each other a little bit in the first round, but Vittori seemed to kind of do the general better work, and I think he I think the impact the moment when he kind of wobbled Cannonier was a bit more significant than the other way around um, the only other round I think in question was what was it that was it four I think it was four that one of the judges gave to Vittori and to be abundantly clear I don't agree but Given how the first half of that round went, I don't think it's one of those weird things where there's such there's such latitude in play for some of this stuff with the judges. When I say giving Vittori the fourth is not out of bounds, it it just means that it doesn't scream incompetence or ignorance or corruption to me. I don't like it. I don't think it's correct. But I also don't think it's it's not incomprehensible to me. There was another there's actually another one on this card. Um yeah, somebody gave we'll talk about the fight itself in a I think it was this in a minute or two. 
Um, but somebody gave Armin Petrosian the second round of his fight with uh, Christian Leroy Duncan. And I I don't I don't agree with that at all. That might be the single worst. Was it that or was it Bukowskis? No, that was the wrong one. Sorry, I, I disagreed with Petrosian there, but I don't think that was wrong. Uh, kicking everything off, uh, I'll get to the fight itself in a second. Modestus Bukowskis and Zach Paunga. Uh, somebody gave Bukowskis all three rounds, and I can't get behind that. The second round. That second round really should have gone to Paunga. And no problem with Bukowskis winning, but 30-27 for him is a bad scorecard. It's objectively worse than 48-46 for Cannoneer. Um, so, uh, how did the fight go? Um, Cannoneer opens up southpaw. He's looking to land calf kicks more, more than anything else, because Vittori's a southpaw, so getting the power leg kick going. Vittori just starts kind of cracking him with the left because Cannoneer's defense from the southpaw stance is clearly not where it needs to be. Uh, which is just, I mean, look, you don't learn. <sighs> Forgive the phrasing here, uh, but I heard someone else say it and I like it. Learning to be bystantial is not easy. And it's actually even harder when you're fighting a southpaw. Um, because, which is weird. I mean, like, what is, in theory, what, you know, what's the southpaw advantage? The southpaw advantage in boxing, primarily, is that the guy fighting left-handed has spent more time knowing what to do and honing his reactions against open stance fighters than you have. There's no, it's not a magic switch. Right? It's not a button you can press and suddenly you start winning. The advantage is I know what I'm doing in this position, in this body position, better than you do in the same position. That's it. That's the advantage. The irony being that actually southpaws against other southpaws struggle because they don't spend as much time fighting close stance fighters. And... I think that's a little bit what happened here with um, with Cannoneer's southpaw. Because his defense was not there. He was getting hit uh, with that power left of Vittori. And it, it, it wobbled him at one point, but he rallied back, spent more time orthodox. He hurt Vittori a little bit. He was a pretty good first round. Second round, Cannoneer is orthodox almost the entire time, but... He's done a little bit of body work to this point, which has slowed Vittori a touch. And he's got a feel for the timing in this second round, and he starts bombing on Marvin Vittori. I've said this for... I said this in my preview that I thought um, Vittori... I can't remember who I picked. I might have been leaning... Did I, I think I did lean Cannoneer, actually. I might be wrong. If you're listening to this, you might remember better than I do. I I don't recall. That's not me trying to shield myself from having to eat crow if I was wrong. If I was wrong, I was wrong. Um, but I did say that Vittori had a head like a cinder block. Like, this... He ate... Again, Jared Cannonier has power. That guy was knocking people out at heavyweight... 
was a power threat at light heavyweight and has stopped more than a few guys here at middleweight. He packs a wallop. And he, again, he just dropped bombs on Marvin. He got him against the fence and punches, uppercuts, elbows, takedowns. I mean, his takedowns were just like, okay, let me get on top of you and drop, again, artillery on you from top position. He landed some sick ground and pound. He's a strong guy. And he's got, again, kind of their big, big power. In this entire fight, he never actually... Marvin Vittori has never been stopped with strikes, ever. He's now, like, starting to climb the list of guys who have absorbed the most significant strikes in the UFC without ever suffering a TKO loss. Number one on the list is Max Holloway. Not terribly surprising, even though he's... Dude, Max has taken some beatings in his time, but he's never been stopped. Um, Also on that list, we got, like, Vera... This would be Chito Vera. Uh, who's the other guy, actually? Hang on, I will. Um, oh, Pedro Munoz, actually. Munoz been hit that much? Yeah, um, he has. So Vittoria is now fourth all-time most significant strikes absorbed without getting KO'd or stopped via strikes in the UFC. Um... I mean, the the third round, not quite as bad as the second. I mean, I give Marvin Vittori's corner credit. Um, was it? Uh, they came out, like, Dewey Cooper, who's his lead, told him between rounds two and three, like, we can't do that again. We can't do that again. Uh, either the ref would stop it or they would stop it. Like, you can't have another round like that. Which was uh, was correct. Like there's, he just couldn't have absorbed that much more damage. I want to take a quick look because now I think it was the fourth that he got. Yeah, it was the fourth that. Uh, yeah, old Sal D'Amato scoring round four for Vittori, the uh, semi-sentient can of uh, Campbell's tomato soup. Maybe it was racial this time. Maybe it was D'Amato favoring the Italian. Maybe we can... <laughs> um, sorry, I sh- I'm mostly aware that's a... It's not the best joke in the world, but I Sal D'Amato annoys me. Um, anyway, so yeah, it was the fourth. Again, I don't agree with that at all. But it's not the worst. It's not out of bounds. Right? Like maybe that's the right way to phrase that. It didn't strike me as out of bounds. Uh, if you want the stats on this, because again, third round, Vittori starts to fight back. He has a good first couple of minutes, but then I don't know if this is a uh, I don't know if this is a leg conditioning thing with him, or if it's a mental thing, but. About half, again, we get to the last two minutes or so of the round. It's maybe even Vittori favored slightly to this point. And then Cannoneer is like, all right, enough of this. Backs him up and starts bombing on him again against the fence. Vittori's footwork against pressure, especially against, like, serious pressure, 
he just kind of hangs out on the fence for periods of time here. I seem to recall Roman Delidze had a little bit of the same kind of success against him. Maybe not quite to this degree. I don't know if it's because Cannoneer... I think Cannoneer's footwork is better, which led to... which is kind of what leads to him corralling him, and then Vittoria just, like, stops moving. Uh, so, you know, Cannoneer gets the third. Fourth is relatively competitive, especially, rel well, to the other two rounds. I still thought Cannoneer won it, but I, I think I did know, like... That was probably... It was a relatively close round. It, it was a competitive round. Then round five is more Cannoneer. Dude, Cannoneer set records in this fight. He set the record for the most significant strikes landed uh, by a, in a UFC middleweight fight. So, he, I mean, this singular performance ranks... What was it? Fourth? I think it was fourth all time in terms of significant strikes landed over the course of a UFC fight. And the irony being, if you take Max Holloway out of the equation, he becomes second only to the fight between um, Rob Font and I think it was Marlon Vera. Where Font landed a pretty, landed a lot. Font landed 270, I think, in that fight. Um, but in this one, let me bring up the actual stat here. Yeah, Cannoneer is officially credited as having landed, uh, 241 significant strikes. Again, that's a record for the middleweight division. Uh, you, again, you want to mess with that number? You got to go all the way down. You're getting down to, like, again, featherweights that have that kind of output. He just unloaded artillery on that guy. And Vittori just... I don't know what that man's head is made of, but it should be studied. He got, if you'll recall, Vittori got bombed on by Paulo Costa, too. Like, those two guys went at it. And here, we know how hard Cannoneer hits, and he just... Vittori got hurt a couple of times, but he never went down. And it's it's a little shocking. Um, yeah, the second round was the worst for... Uh, you know, Cannoneer landed 82 significant strikes in that round. 94 total. Uh... Somebody the size and power of Jared Cannonier hits you 82 times and you don't go down. That's that's a lot. Yeah, for the record on round four, just very briefly, if we look at totals, um, Vittori technically landed more, 37 to Cannonier's 32. One takedown for Cannonier in 30 some odd seconds of control time. Again, I thought Cannoneer still won the fourth, but Vittori spent the first two minutes and change doing some pretty decent work, so I disagree, but I'm not up in arms over it. Live, I know some people were like, how in the world did you give Vittori any round after the first? I think Rebecca Hitman, um, Kaposa did that thing. He's like, how did you do that? He rewatched round four and went, 
Okay, real time, I forgot how good Vittori's first half of that round was. Still don't think he won it, but... Uh, it's not... It's not crazy. It, I think it's wrong, but I don't think it's, again, out of bounds. And then, yeah, round five. Again, 49 significant strikes for Cannoneer. 23 for Vittori. Just a, a, a beating. It was a fight. I mean, this was actually a fight of the night. But... Jared Cannonier, when he gets rolling downhill, man, that is a scary dude. Um, his calf kicks were working pretty good. It's, the power difference was big. The pressure difference was big. It was John Crouch who was kind of telling him between rounds every time. Like, clearly they drilled this. You know, what wins the fight? Footwork. So don't stand still. Don't stand in front of him. Good footwork. Pressure and violence. John Crouch is a very, very good coach. Uh, they put together something that worked. Uh, that pretty clearly worked. After the fight, Cannoneers... <sighs> Other people had mentioned this before. The UFC is pretty clearly leaning towards the winner of the upcoming fight between Robert Whitaker and Drikas Duplessis to get the next shot at Israel Adesanya. This performance from Cannoneer, if he'd gotten the stoppage, it would have helped. It would have helped a lot. I think he's probably still behind them, the, whoever wins that fight, with a caveat. Um, this was, again, this was fight of the night. This is one of my, this went on my list of like potential fights of the year. This was a really good fight. With that... He doesn't leapfrog them, but if the winner of uh, Duplessis and Whitaker is disputed, or the fight sucks, uh, then they this was enough to overcome. I think this would have been enough of a performance to overcome something like that. Again, a bad decision, a bad stoppage. Or a really just terrible, terrible fight. Um, for the record, especially if it's Whitaker. If Whitaker wins a really boring fight, I don't think Whitaker has ever won. I don't think Whitaker has been in a boring fight. Even, even some of the fights that aren't barn burners of his, like uh, the the second fight with Adesanya, didn't exactly set the world on fire. But I don't think it was boring. Uh, it was just super tactical, and that's not always the most exciting, but that doesn't make it... There's something of a... Lack of excitement does not necessarily equate to boring, which is a weird thing to say, but I hope you understand what I mean. And that's probably the closest Whitaker's come to being in a boring fight. So I don't expect that, but if he wins a just boring fight, this, because he's lost to Adesanya twice, that might be enough to get Cannoneer over the hump. Uh, my hunch is if Duplessis wins, even if it's boring, uh, they'll give him the shot just because he's new. Uh, that said, again, Cannoneer did the best that he could Short of actually stopping a guy who'd never been stopped with strikes, 
you couldn't have asked much for much more out of Cannoneer in this one. Dude set a record. That's probably... It, it's going to be a while before that one's touched in the division. Most middleweights do not have... They either don't have the cardio, or the other guy doesn't have the uh, chin to take that kind of abuse. These two guys fought at a pretty good clip all five rounds. I'm going to take my take my hat off to both of them in that respect. These two gentlemen came in in shape and ready for five rounds. Uh, tough loss for Vittori. He showed not only his chin, I'm, I'm making it sound a little bit maybe like he's uh, you know a Homer Simpson type uh, that's just, you know, absorbing damage. It wasn't just that. A lot of a lot of this was Cannoneer being clever. And it's not like Vittori had no success. He rocked Cannoneer early. He found his left hand later. He landed some real... These two were jabbing each other. Uh, he had success. He was... After that second round, I thought he was kind of cooked. Instead, he came back and he kept... Even though I had him losing every other round still, he never... It never got as bad as it did in the second again for him. And that's a real hard thing to do. If you've never been... Um, if you've never been beat down like that, to then never regress to that point throughout the course of a fight, that is a heck of a thing to pull off. Uh, Vittori's still young. He's, what, 29? Because Cannoneer, I think, is like... Isn't Cannoneer 39? Yeah, these guys are 10 years apart, and uh, Vittori's 29. His face got messed up here. Uh, one thing about Vittori, I haven't talked about it a whole lot before because it's a weird thing to say, but Marvin Vittori will get torn up. I mean, and look, this is not the that doesn't mean it's the end of your fight career. He perseveres through damage pretty darn well, but he gets he gets marked up. And again, plenty of guys this has been true of. You know, GSP did not wear damage especially well in the sense, like, how much how much effort do you have to put into hurting him cosmetically? Not a lot. Fedor. It didn't take a lot to get that guy to mark him up. And Frankie Edgar's nose seemed to bleed every fight he was in. And if you couldn't make his nose bleed in the first round, you were in trouble. There's There are just some guys who mark up easier, and I think Vittori's one of those guys. Uh, his nose got busted up, uh, cut under the, on the bridge of the nose. Had a pretty big cut opened up under his left eye. Uh, he got he got marked up, man. That dam He was wearing that damage, and he fought through it, and maybe I should find a better way to phrase that, because sometimes when I say people don't wear damage well, it means they, like, fall apart. Uh, that's not what I mean when it comes to Vittori in this case. I just mean he gets damaged easily. I mean, who else? Like, again, some guys just do. You know, but it wasn't hard to uh, it wasn't hard to damage the either of the Diaz brothers actually. Pretty much throughout their careers, like you could bust them up. They didn't care, but you could do it. So. It might be something Vittori has to keep in mind, is how you kind of have to deal with that at some point, you know? 
Um, he's still got time, but there's some stuff he's got to start. He needs to show his level up in the near future. Like he's got to figure out a couple of things if he's going to really make it. Uh, this could have been kind of a last stand for Cannoneer. At 39, already had that loss to the champion, had the loss to Whitaker. If he'd lost here, I'm not saying he couldn't get back to the title, but at his age and with some of that on your, some of that baggage you're carrying around there, uh, he needed this if he if he wanted to keep his title aspirations alive. So, good fight, uh, good win for Cannoneer. Was a for a pretty lackluster card in general, and. There was some good stuff. I don't mean to say that the whole card sucked. It didn't. But between a few... Call it officiating issues. We'll get to them. Uh, just kind of being a little bit long. They lost a couple of fights on this card. Um, the big one I think that hurt everything was uh, Hani Barcelos and Miles Johns. Um, that fell apart. Like, fight weak. We also lost... Uh, Zhalgas Zumagulov and Felipe Bunez. Um, Bunez had uh, had a drug test issue. He got pulled. Zumagulov now fights Josh Vanna uh, this coming card. We'll talk about that later. So we lost a couple of fights. And there was just this event had some airtime to fill. Um, and there were some some of those officiating issues that kind of either prolong or, in some cases, really shorten some stuff. Uh, if I think back on just the fights as I look over the results and whatnot, not great, but something about the pacing of the event really turned it into a drag to watch in real time. I imagine if I could go back and just kind of rewatch, you know, at a decent clip, it might not be that bad. And not great, but not awful either. Anyway, so that was the main event. Co-main event. Armin Soyukin defeats Joachim Silva via TKO punches, 325 of the third. All, I'm going to give Silva credit. The, the first round went real bad for him. Uh, Soyukin got him down pretty, pretty, pretty quick. Got him against the fence. Uh, started doing damage later. Um, just a real bad round for him. Second round, Silva gets back into the fight a little bit. Uh, they spend most of the second round on the feed. Might have been all of it. Um, and at one point, I think I gave him the second. He pretty badly wobbles Soyukin with a left hook. Um, third round, Soyukin, and like, all right, enough of that. Uh, got a takedown, got... Silva wall-walked. Silva's get-ups were not especially impressive, and I know some of that is Saryukian's top control being just excellent. But there's still some stuff that I wasn't seeing at him in terms of setting up his wall walks or his get-ups that is a little troubling. You might want to work on that. But they got up. Uh, then Silva threw a knee. Saryukian caught it, took him down, and kind of dumped him on his head. as He, threw, he didn't spike him. But he landed on his... Uh, Silva landed, you know, a good chunk of his weight went onto his head. He got hurt from that. Soyukin got on top and just 
elbows, hammer fists, punches until the ref says, okay, we're done here. Uh, so Yuki and on the feet. This, this is kind of my big takeaway from this. His offense is still pretty potent. He's got decent hand speed. Um, he's got okay power. His lead leg kicks actually are pretty dexterous. But anytime you get him going backwards, uh, he is just not the same fighter at all if he's on the back foot versus the front foot. And his his defense, especially if he's like exchanging in the pocket, his defense there is not... You need really good defense in that position. If you don't have it, if you don't have really good defense there, you want to avoid trading in that space because the guy, especially the guys who are good in that space, they have good defense and they have power in there. And if you can't hang with them in that sense, your best bet is to avoid it entirely. His pocket striking at the moment leaves a little to be desired. And that's where Silva kind of started finding him later. Soyuki is still very, very good. Uh, Post-fight, he said he wants to fight either Benil Daryush or maybe Michael Chandler, since the Conor McGregor fight looks like it's not happening. More on that later. I am okay with either of those. Here's kind of my thing about Saryukian. He's only 26. He's good. I don't mean to say otherwise. I mean, his only losses in the UFC are to Islam Makashev and Mateusz Gamrot. The Makashev fight was, again, somewhat on short notice, and he gave Islam a pretty good fight. And then he and Gamrot just had the craziest wrestling match you'll see over 25 minutes. Uh, I think part of the issue he's going to run into is he's so good, he's not going to get the types of seasoning fights that you normally need. He's proven he can hang with some of the upper-tier guys at lightweight, which means that's mostly what he's going to be fighting, which means a lot of his development... I mean, the guy's got 23 fights. So I'm, it's not like he's a green fighter, but between his young age and... You know, maybe my issue is more with his ranking. Because he's ranked, he was ranked number eight, I think, coming into this. Here's the thing. Again, he has the, the only the two losses and, what, eight wins in the UFC now? Where's the seven? Yeah, this was his seventh. He's seven and two in the UFC. His wins are as follows, and bear with me here for a second. I'm making a point. Olivier Aubameyang, Davi Hamos, Matt Frivola. Uh, so you can miss wait for the Frivola fight. Finishes Christos Yagos in the first round. Finishes Joel Alvarez in the second round. Loses to Gamrot. Then he decisions Demiris Magulov and here stops Joachim Silva. That's respectable. Those are those are good names to have on your resume. And these Magul here's the problem. 
you can argue which of these his best two wins are either Demiris Magulov, who is gonna have like one more fight and then retire, or Joel Alvarez, who I I'm not here to poke fun at Joel Alvarez. He's a big guy, and he's six two and fights at lightweight. Um he had a four fight winning streak in the UFC before he fought Saryukian. Been out for over a year, though. Supposed to fight... Actually, upcoming later this year, okay. Um, Alvarez is a good fighter, but Saryukian hasn't had that, like... He's had good performances, but he's not really... His best opponents in the UFC are his two losses, is maybe the best way to phrase this. Islam Akashev and Mateusz Gamrat are hands down the best guys he's fought. And he was in those fights, but he lost. It might... He might... If he were to fight either Darius or Chandler, I think he would be in those fights as well. He might even win. I might favor him over Chandler. I might. I have to think about that one. But there's just... He was so good against that lower-than-elite level of competition that he wound up fighting the elites probably before it would have benefited his skill development. Um, again, this is stuff he can still work on, so I don't know, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just, you know, spitballing here, but, uh, I don't know, that, that's just, it's something that kind of struck me watching this fight, like, there's still an unrefined element to parts of his game that you really don't want to see in a top 10 lightweight it doesn't mean you have to be world-class at everything, but everything should form a cohesive unit, right? If you look at, uh, I mean, I'm going to bring up both, uh, you know, you can do Oliveira too. Like, if you look at uh, Khabib or Makashev or Oliveira, none of them are, again, they're not lights out everywhere. Uh, Khabib's striking was, if you took it just for the sake of it's on its own, was not great, but it served his MMA game. It was designed to. Makashev's striking is actually pretty good, but it's designed to service his overall vision of how he fights. Charles Oliveira has deficiencies in his game. His defense is still a little suspect. He's way too happy to be on his back for long periods of time. His takedown game is actually pretty weak if he can't get to a clinch. Uh, I'm nitpicking here. Like the dude's one of the best lightweights in the world. So when I but when I say that, that's kind of making the point. Those de- even those with those deficiencies it all harmonizes in his game, right? Like his defense is a little bit lacking, partially because he is so offensively potent. 
He doesn't have great shots from the outside because he'd rather fight his way into a clinch. His clinch game is pretty darn good. Both takedowns and just, you know, landing knees and elbows. There, it all, again, it all harmonizes, right? Saryukian has a lot of exceptional tools. And his wrestling is an exceptional tool. But I don't think he's really got everything. I don't think he's quite got everything integrated the way you would like. 29 years old. Plenty of other fighters that same age have that same issue. Just noting it, because i got to talk about something related to the fight. Um, Silva, that guy just, he didn't stay active enough. I remember his debut. Because he's debuted for the UFC in 2015. He's been there a while. He just doesn't have a lot of fights. He fought once in 15, once in 16, once in 17, twice in 18, once in 19, not at all in 20, once in 21, once in 22. This is his first fight of 23. He's just not active. And that's kind of the biggest drawback because he has another guy with some good tools. Uh, middleweight, Armin Petrosian defeated Christian Leroy Duncan via unanimous decision, 130-27-229-28. A pretty good outing from Petrosian. Duncan, I'm glad he had this, I'm glad he had this experience at this point in his UFC career. He's one of those big guys with pretty good power, good kicks, but he got by on the regional scene on the physical attributes rather than technical acumen. And that's fine, but that stops working. Uh, Especially when you get to the UFC, you can no longer lean on those things. And Petrosian kind of showed him that. Yeah, you're a big guy and you've got flashy kicks. Okay, what if they don't land? And this was a, a this was not a blowout fight for Petrosian, but it was a he stuck to fundamentals, and he kinda audited what Duncan was doing, and found it wanting. So, if Duncan learns the appropriate lessons from this, uh, he's still a he's still a pretty big guy, and he's got uh, the wingspan on Duncan is enormous. I mean, he had like eight inches of reach on Petrosian, uh, which is a heck of a thing. But you got to be able to use it. So if he if he takes the lesson, there's still a pretty good upside for him. Uh, Petrosian wants to move on to fighting more recognizable opponents. I think that's probably about due for him. He's I think three and one in the UFC. Yeah, how he's looked, I I don't I'm not saying anyone ranked necessarily. But give him more recognizable names. I think that I think that's due. Uh, featherweight Pat Sabatini defeated Lucas Almeida via arm triangle, one forty eight of the second. Sabatini he was coming off of that rough loss to Damon Jackson, who Jackson kind of just ran him over, didn't he? 
Yeah, it was like one minute and nine seconds, and Jackson Jackson just hammered him out. Uh, he he looked okay here. He looked more like himself. Um, good forward pressure, pretty good takedowns, good passing game. His ground and pound, it was present. Would like to see more of it. And you cut the arm triangle late, uh, kind of in transition. So, good bounce back win for Sabatini. He could, he kind of needed that after the after the Jackson fight. Lightweight. Oh, good grief! Manuel Torres knocked Nicholas Mata into next week with an elbow. Uh, 150, excuse me, of the first round. Open stance fighters, uh, Torres fighting southpaw. Gets outside foot position, steps deep, elbowed right down the pipe. Mata fell like, uh, somebody said, he looked like uh, a video game. Like ragdoll video game physics. Boom, dropped onto his side. Um, wonderful knockout if you like the violence. And you all know I like the violence. Uh, yeah, really good finish from Torres. Welterweight, Nicholas Dalby defeated Muslim Salikov unanimous decision, 230-27s, 129-28. Pretty good fight from Dalby. Um, he was on the wrong end of most of the first round. You could have given that to Salikov, I think. I gave it to Dalby because in the closing bit, he landed a flush head kick that almost knocked Salikov down. And... While Salikov had kind of, you know, I thought the other round was his to that point, and I don't even disagree with you giving it to him. Might have been the angle I was looking at at the time uh, with that head kick from Dalby and some of the follow-ups, but I thought it was enough for Dalby to kind of overtake. That said, you know, that first round, could you could legitimately score it either way. I'm not complaining. Rounds two and three, a lot more from Dalby. Some pretty good body work, good pressure, good physicality. Uh, clinches, takedowns, some work on top. Really solid overall performance out of Dalby here. Um, good win for him. Very good win. That was the main card. On the prelims, uh, Alessandro Costa defeated Jimmy Flick via TKO, elbows, 103 of the second. Uh, Costa just crippled Flick with calf kicks and then got on top and kind of pounded him out. Pretty good win for Costa. Bantamweight, Kyung Ho Kong defeated Christian Quinones via rear naked choke, 225 of the first. So Quinones hurts Kong. Uh, gets him backing up, but he thinks Kong is hurt more than he is and comes in looking to swing and finish and Mr. Perfect there, Kyung Ho Kong, cracks him with a left hand, right hook, drops him. Gets on top, starts working, gets to the back, choke, donezo. Uh, good win for Kong. Good win for Kong. Flyweight, uh, Carlos Hernandez. Oh, this. Defeated Den uh, Dennis Bondar via technical decision, unanimous. 30-27, um, 30-27, 29 uh, 4-59 of the third. So, a couple of things about this. At the end of the second round, um, Bondar kind of tossed Hernandez away from a takedown attempt. Or he got up from under him, 
Hernandez was on his knees. Bondar like threw a punch, then walked closer to him and kneed him in the head. Now, originally when looking at this, I didn't know what he was doing. I thought you just, you'd need the guy in the head. Now, on replay, look, there is no doubt about the knee hitting the head, okay? That's not in dispute here. What it looks more like happened is Bondar threw a, was throwing a roundhouse to, like, the shoulder or the arm. And the shin glanced off of Bondar, off of uh, Hernandez's arm and shoulder, and because of the angle, it kind of meant the knee went into the head. Again, that's kind of what it looked like. It was a weird... It was right at the end of the round. It was just a weird thing. No point was taken. I kind of think there should have been a point taken there, personally. I... I'm aware that not all instances of knees to the head of a downed opponent are created equal. If the other guy is flat out on his knees, and you walk up to him and throw that, yeah, that's kind of on you entirely. Like you can see the whole thing. This isn't one of those instances where you know you you've got like a, a rear waist lock against the fence, and because of the angle your head's at, you can't tell if one of their hands is down. This wasn't that. So no point taken though. All right. Um, third round. Uh, Hernandez has done really good work pretty much the whole fight. Uh, sharp counterboxing, pretty good elbows at times. He cut Bondar up a fair bit. So our closing bit here, they wind up clinched. Um, Hernandez gets a body lock and gets a body lock takedown reminiscent of a few that you've probably seen before, like the one that might come easiest to ref, maybe two. Um... When Tito Ortiz stopped Evan Tanner, and then was the other one that was kind of similar to this, I think. Uh, Frank Shamrock had one where he stopped a guy with a slam. I forget who. Uh, so I believe it was some Russian gentleman. And he hits this slam, comes up and just elbows the heck out of Bondar. I mean, just brutal. He's already out. Like the slam essentially knocks out Bondar. Referee steps in, then says he wants to look at the replay in case there was a clash of heads on the takedown. And here's the thing. He rules that there was, and that's why we got a decision, a technical decision, instead of a stoppage win for Hernandez. I do not agree with the referee here. Um, at all. I'm not saying there was no bits of head-to-head contact here. I'm saying, one, Dominic Cruz brought this up on commentary, actually. You don't know if the slam knocked him out or... And and the, the head clash here was very minimal. Now, sometimes that's all it takes. I'm not saying that... I'm, I'm not saying that it couldn't have... I'm saying I've also seen slams that are 
you've seen slams where heads really bang together. This wasn't that. But you can't actually tell if the legal technique didn't just knock him out and the you know, kind of the heads were incidental and didn't affect anything, which was, is just penalizing the guy for doing the slam. Second, and uh, Hernandez was pretty vocal about this, if you watch any amateur wrestling match where they do this takedown, they do it pretty much exactly like he did. I know we don't want headbutts. Okay? I get it. There does come a point, though, when you just have to accept that some of this stuff is in play. And to me, if your heads bang together on on a takedown, especially if it's in, in smaller like this one, that's just how the game is played, right? I mean, it just seems weird to me that we're overanalyzing this now. Again, I am not in favor of headbutts. I was I actually didn't hate the referee saying I think they I want to make sure this was a clean I want, I want to make sure there was no like bad headbutting. I don't hate that. I hate that he looked at what happened and went this rises to the level of taking away the stoppage from this guy. And yeah. I just, I don't like that this sport might be going in that direction. So I think it was a bad call from the ref, straight up. I think it was a bad call. I think it was Jaron Vallel. So not between not taking the point in the second round, the the really slow move to stop this when Bondar is unconscious, getting elbowed in the face repeatedly. Like There were three or four shots that he did not need to take, my man. You you botched this pretty badly. And then to top it off, you make that weird call. Um, again, I, I didn't love it. Um, Hernandez, let me just take half a step back from that. And say, Carlos Hernandez looked pretty darn good. Smooth on the feet, good footwork, good counters, fast hands. Uh, he looked real good. I I give him all the credit in the world. I understand his being pissed about this. I would be too. Um, that's a, I, I think it's a bad call by the ref. Uh, I think that kind of, again, those kind of, that thing happens all the, if that's, amateur wrestling is relatively, um, pedantic's not the right word. It implies too much. Amateur wrestling is pretty, um, they're willing to get in the weeds on some of their rules. If you're now calling for an over, calling for a foul on some, on a pure wrestling move that in a, even in a wrestling ring, everyone would kind of shrug on the wrestling mat, I should say mat rather than ring in case you get the wrong idea about which wrestling I'm referring to. We're a little bit, we're like a bridge too far here, people. Okay. Somewhat inherent to MMA is 
this. That this stuff ju does just happen on occasion, and we all... It's part of the buy-in. Um, who is it I heard? I think Luke Thomas has relayed this story. That there was... Years ago, there was some discussion about scoring in MMA, and maybe we should systematize it more. You know, maybe we should develop point criteria for takedowns the way wrestling does, uh, or something more specific for knockdowns like boxing. And part of the, I think it was Jeff Blatnick, part of the response that was given when asked about this was, to do that would be to take away some of the essence of MMA. I think it was, I think that's true. Um, maybe at some point in the future, someone will find the right way to score MMA. They will have the right criteria, they will set that up, and we will get the right rule set, and at some point in the future, it'll all be, we will figure that out. Right? At some point, maybe. But until then, trying to get too in the weeds in this stuff does kind of take away from the appeal and the spirit of what mixed martial arts fighting is. And I think that's where we landed here. So I feel bad for Hernandez. Um, should be a stoppage win for him. Uh, women's flyweight Teresa Bleda defeated Gabriela Fernandez via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Fernandez has some decent kickboxing, but she gets taken down way too easy and she cannot get up. And that's where we found ourselves. Bantamweight, this was weird. Uh, Dan Argueda defeated Ronnie, and Ronnie Lawrence fought to a no contest. 220 of the first. This sucked for everybody. Um, Argueda looked pretty darn good. He was out wrestling Lawrence. He was, uh, we got the no contest because Argueda, Lawrence is trying to fight up from under Argueda. Argueda moves to a front headlock. Threatens a guillotine, they roll through, he threatens an anaconda, they roll through, he threatens a dar, it's like he's working a front headlock series. He rolls back to full mount with the guillotine. And he's working it. He's tightening it, he's adjusting. Lawrence, on his back, he's in a bad spot. His right hand is up, kind of by Argueda's hip. Thinking about tapping. He's not, but he's thinking about it. He's aware of the bad spot he's in. And Argueda's trying to crank the choke. And the referee, uh, this would have been Keith Peterson, he reaches to check the hand of Ronnie Lawrence. You kind of grab it and shake it, you know, make sure there's still resistance there. I think he thought there had been kind of a tap before when there hadn't. And I don't want to bag on him too much for this because, let me just phrase it this way. He's on the same side, he's on Ronnie Lawrence's right. So he's by the hand that's in question. He also, from that angle, can't really see Lawrence's face. I think if he could, you could see that he's not unconscious. Like, there... He's not even close. He, again, there is a choke in. It is in a bad spot. And it could get to a point where he has to tap. But he's not out. 
and as Peterson checks the hand, Lawrence gives the hand gives some goes to give resistance. He pushes the hand away. He pushes back into it. That's what he's trying to do. Peterson pushes the hand as Lawrence pushes back into him. Peterson moves his hand, and as a result of the just the momentum generated, he winds up kind of hitting a great in the thigh, uh, on the hip. And Peterson reads this as a submission. He stops the fight. Lawrence immediately protests. Um, to the credit of all parties involved, they check the replay, and Peterson comes up and says, yeah, I screwed that up. Hence, no contest. You know... I'm going to quote, again, uh, Grabaka Hitman on this one. There's some Russian MMA federations that have the kind of the standing policy in place of if this happens, we just restart the fight. I would like that. Um, Argueda was, he was doing good. It sucks for him because he was winning this. We're only two and a half. We're not even halfway through the first round. Okay. Could have gone a variety of ways. That 220 was pretty much all him. Not 10-8 territory necessarily, but he was the one in control. He was the one forcing the issue. Like His fight to that point. No question. So it sucks for him that a potential win gets mucked up. Sucks for Lawrence to be deprived of the opportunity to fight out of a bad position, which he might have... Dude, that choke might have got cinched up a little tighter and then he taps. He might have got out of it and then still been in a bad position. He might have come back in rounds two and three to win. We'll never know. So sucks for him. And it sucks for both guys that the UFC's pay structure is what it is. And I don't mean percentage-wise. I mean the show-win split is at this point archaic. And borderline punitive. And I've made my case that should go away before. So that sucks. Bad call by the ref. Uh, you just... Just not a good... Not a good call. Um, he was... What was the other one? He, did he, Was he the... Yeah, I think uh, I think Peterson refed the Saryukian and Selva fight and was slightly slow on that stoppage, I thought. Uh, not the worst. Put it this way. I probably would have stopped it two, hammer, two or three hammer fists before he did. But it, it wasn't... Uh, look, I clearly didn't get up in arms over it. And I, I have in the past over bad stoppages. So that was unfortunate for both guys. Uh... Yeah, just sucks all around. And kicking everything off, Modestus Bukowskis defeated Zach Paunga via unanimous decision, 229-28s and a 30-27. Yet giving Bukowskis the second round is, like, the worst scorecard of the night. Um, who did that? Actually, it wasn't D'Amato or Cleary. It was um, Anthony Maness. Not, yeah, not his finest night. Media scores mostly for Paunga. Interesting. I scored this for Bukowskis. Um, majority were 29-28, Paunga. Uh, that said, this probably hinges on the third 
I think for most people. Or is it the first for most people? I actually don't... That's weird. Like, I... I've... I've held the different... I've held a different uh, opinion from the majority of media outlets before. I'm curious to see how they... I thought... Is it the first? I thought Bukowska said the first. Uh, and Ponga the second. I thought Bukowska said the third. I'm not quite sure. My hunch is most of the media outlets who did score 29-20 for Ponga also, like said... Whatever round in question swung it for them was close, so. Um, yeah, I think technically Paunga had a numerical edge in all three rounds. Let me double check this. Um, the totals per round. Yeah, Ponga technically outlanded him all three rounds. Here's kind of the problem. Um, or was it round... No, no, it was round two that was the wonky one. Um, Ponga had 204 of control in the first, uh, but he got hurt. Um, he got hurt late in, the, late in that round. And it was enough for, I thought, uh, Bukowskis to take it. I think everyone else agreed. Round two, Ponga out. He lands more. Um, I don't know. Round two, I, I gave it to Ponga. Round three, Ponga lands five more significant strikes. Yeah, their total strikes were dead even. A little more control time for Bukowskis. Uh, yeah, I have no problem with Bukowskis getting this one. I don't know. I don't agree with him getting the second round. Like, that's my big thing here. 30-27 for him saying uh, very wrong. But anyway, that was the event. It was what it was. Uh, your fight of the night I mentioned, Cannoneer and Vittori. Million percent deserved. Performances went to Manuel Torres for that elbow from hell, and then uh, Alessandro Costa. Um, real shame that Hernandez didn't get one. Uh, he... That poor guy, man. Uh, he turned in a really good performance and unfortunately got... not going to be rewarded as maybe it should have been. All right, if you want my full report for that event, it is up in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. In the MMA Zone, go give it a read. I appreciate it. All right, let's move on. UFC on ESP... Excuse me. UFC on ABC5. This comes your way Saturday, June 24th, and has a start time. Let's see if they've settled this. Um, I Because be I believe the main card starts at 3... Yeah, so the prelims are going to start at 11, are listed currently at starting at 11.30 Eastern. It's 9.30 in the morning for me on a Saturday. Uh, I am glad I, there was a chance I had something else that might have come up, but it would have been early morning, and this is early morning for me, because that's 9.30 in the morning for me. Yeah, so, well, I'll have the evening free, at least. So, 
for those of you anywhere in the world, uh, again, morning slash early afternoon, depending on where you are specifically for that event. So keep that in mind if you want to watch live or follow along. All right. Main event. Josh Emmett, Ilya Teporia. Love the fight. Emmett coming off of that lost. Man, he got kind of carved up. Uh, by Yair Rodriguez before the triangle choke. Had a good winning streak going before that. I mean, he had a tough split decision loss at lightweight in his third UFC fight. He dropped a featherweight, won a couple of fights, got brutally knocked out by Jeremy Stevens. Jeremy Stevens broke his face. And that's not a joke, like, broke his face. He recovered, he came back, he knocked out Michael Johnson. He was losing that fight before he landed that. Um, beat Mersad Bektich, beat Shane Burgos, that was a good fight, beat Dan Ige. Had that split win over Calvin Cater that I thought he lost, then had the interim title fight with Rodriguez that he lost. Um, how old is Emmett? 38. 38 at featherweight's pretty old. Uh, Teporia by Con- Teporia is only 26. The 12-year age gap. Good grief. Ilya Teporia undefeated, 13 and 0. Um, what 5 and 0 in the UFC? Four of those finishes. Knocked out Damon Jackson. Knocked out Ryan Hall. Knocked out Jai Herbert. Brutalized Bryce Mitchell before choking him out uh, with an arm triangle. This is a pretty big step up for him. Emmett is much more seasoned than Bryce Mitchell was. Emmett is rugged, power puncher, fought the best. Uh, This is a pretty decent step up for Teporia. If Teporia wins, that it's hard to say that will get him a title shot because it's featherweight. And Max Holloway's still around. We don't quite know what's going to happen between Yair Rodriguez and Alexander Volkanovsky. That said, like a Teporia win here would put him in line for it. Uh, he'd certainly be in the conversation. <sighs> Emmett's a good wrestler, but he doesn't wrestle a lot. He does a lot of the uh, the old rest. He's a lot of the wrestle boxing without much of the wrestling these days, and he's got heavy hands, man. But he's another one of those guys who just gets damaged. And Rodriguez put damage on him. Calvin Cater put damage on him. And he, to his credit, he persevered in both those cases as long as he could. I think he'll try to wrestle Teporia a bit, but... I'm not saying Josh Emmett can't win this. Ilya Teporia hits very hard. Both these guys hit very hard. Emmett's the better pure wrestler, but I wonder if Teporia's scrambles aren't better. Curious to see Teporia over potentially five rounds, because we've seen we've seen Emmett do it. Uh, I don't know, man. Emmett's lack of defense is a problem. It got him in trouble against Cater. It got him in trouble against um, Rodriguez. I think it's going to get him in trouble here. I'm I'm going to pick Teporia, but it's a great fight. 
Uh, co-main event, Amanda Hebos and Macy Barber. I can't speak for anyone else. I can only speak for myself. I do not care. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Um, look, Barber's, she's had a couple of... <sighs> Macy Barber has won a couple of fights in her current winning streak that I thought she lost. I, th- I was pretty sure that Miranda Maverick had beaten her. I think I scored the fight with and I can't remember how I scored the fight with Andrea Lee. Um, but Barber is just she's kind of fizzled for me. Um, he boss came into the UFC and had a pretty good run, and then she had some setbacks. Uh, she's coming off a win over Viviani Arujo, but we're back at flyweight. Uh, my hunch is Barber probably gets another decision that she maybe shouldn't. And then kind of my hunch. Uh, I just... These are two fighters that are younger, have relatively good... Per, have like um bubbly personalities. They're very effusive. And the UFC kind of wants to be better than they are. I mean, if you look at Macy Barber's early run in the UFC, she talked a giant game and then you know, had setbacks, and it's kind of just is what it is with her at this point. Um, one of the lines, especially after the last couple of fights that, is, that came out, was Aaron Blanchfield is everything Macy Barber claimed that Barber was. I think that's accurate. So I think I'm going to lean towards Barber here, but... I don't have a lot of enthusiasm for this fight. Uh, next up, middleweights. Cody Brundage and uh, Sadiquas Duma. Dumas? Get how he pronounces that. Uh, forgive me. Let me double check what we've got for these two. So, Brundage. He's been up and down. Um, two and three in the UFC on a two-fight losing streak. I mean, Mikhail Oluksajic and then Adolfo Vieira, so... Pretty decent talent there. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Dumas at the moment, because I believe that's how he pronounces it. He lost his UFC debut. Um, I don't know. Me lean towards Brundage just a little bit, but I don't know. I don't know about that one. Uh, David Onama and Gabriel Santos. I think this is Onama. He's what, 2 and 1 in the UFC? 2 and 2. Alright, right. He lost to Nate Landwehr. I almost forgot that fight happened. Um. Well, he's been out. Yeah, he had a couple of fights fall out. Anyway, Santos is 10 and 1. He also lost his UFC debut. Um, yeah, the uh, Lerone Murphy. Yeah, I think that's Onama, but not by a huge margin. Let's see, Brendan Allen and Bruno Silva. Ooh. Why isn't this higher? <laughs> 
Eh, maybe you want to get the main card off with a bang. You need the hot opener for the main card. But uh, this is a good fight, actually. Brendan Allen has only had two losses in the UFC. Uh, one of those to Sean Strickland, the other to Chris Curtis. He's on a four-fight winning streak. The last uh, yeah, three of those have been finishes. Uh, coming off yeah, the current streak, he beat Sam Alvey at light heavyweight. Beat Jacob Malkoon. That was a one-off. He's a middleweight. Uh, then last two fights, he stopped both Christoph Yatko and Andrew Muniz. The Muniz win was big. I thought he was going to lose that one. Um, he seems to be doing pretty good. And then Bruno Silva is... Uh, he's had some tough fights in the UFC. He was looking pretty darn good, and then he ran into Alex Pereira. Um, Gerald Mershart beat him after that. He did win his last one, though. Oh, yeah, when he stopped Brad Tavares. It's a pretty good win for him. This is actually, this is a pretty good fight. I'm going to lean towards Allen. I think he's starting to roll. I think he might be ready for, again, some, uh, might be ready for something there. But that's a pretty good fight. On the prelims, let's see. Neil Magny will fight Philip Rowe. I need... I don't have a great reason to pick against Neil Magny here, and I kind of need a reason. Um, Magny just... Magny just exists. Like, I'm going to give the man credit for sticking around forever. Like His UFC debut was back in 2013. In... Wait, February. Yeah, he's over 20 years... He's over 10 years... 20. He's over 10 years in the UFC. That is hard to do. And he's never been top of the heap. But uh, he's had some good fights. He's had some good wins. Uh, he's He is the... At the moment, he is the gatekeeper at middleweight. That... Er, middleweight. Welterweight. He is the gatekeeper at welterweight. Uh, I mean, he's the most decision wins in UFC history at 13. Uh, he's he's a tough fighter to beat, man. He's People have started to figure him out a little bit. He's coming off that loss to Gilbert Burns, and I mean, he hasn't had a losing streak since 2013, so... Dude's almost 10 years without back-to-back -back losses. It was in November of 13, so... And he's trying to avoid that here. Gilbert Burns kind of ran him over their last that last fight. Um, beat Daniel Rodriguez before that. Then before that, yeah, Shavkat Rachmanov got him good. Because, uh... Well, Rachmanov, it, dude, that... That guy might be wearing gold sooner rather than later. I'm a pretty big believer in Rachmanov. Uh, but anyway, Roe. Eh, on a three-fight winning streak. Missed weight twice at welterweight? Good grief. Yeah, again, I need a good reason to pick against Neil Magny. And I'm not saying Roe's incapable of winning this, but I do not see a compelling reason to pick him here. Flyweight, uh, Zalgash Zumagulov and Joshua Van. Um, Van 
I do not recognize that flag. Oh, Myanmar. Okay. I believe he would be the first, uh, he'd be the first, what do they call themselves? Myanmarese? He's the first fighter from Myanmar to make his way to the UFC, is my hunch. First I can remember. Uh, he's a pretty good action fighter. On a good winning streak. Um... Yeah, uh, Zuma Gulov, that poor guy. One and five in the UFC. His last two fights have been split decisions that he probably should have won. I, I'm pretty sure I scored the Jeff Molina fight for him. That one I'm not as sure about. I know, I thought he beat Charles Johnson. Um, I kind of, I... I might have scored the Albazi fight for him. I'd have to double-check that one. But that guy has had some real bad luck. Um, I don't know if that doesn't continue here. Van is... I... Zhumagolov is the safe pick. So that's where I'm going to lean, but... Van might well take this. Heavyweights. Uh, Austin Lane and Justin Taffa. Lane is... Is he making his UFC debut? He is. Another one of these uh, former football player. Okay, he lost to Greg Hardy on the Contender Series in 2018. <laughs> you know, credit to him, though. He stuck with it. He suffered a loss after that. couple of wins. Uh, loss. He's currently on a... He's on a six-fight winning streak. The best name on that list? Probably Juan Adams. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Taffa... He's won his last two. Oh, yeah, he missed. I remember when he missed heavyweight. First guy ever to do it. Um, yeah, I beat Hunsucker. He beat Porter. I feel like I should pick Taffa here, so I'm going to. But that's, you know, lower level heavyweight, so insanity might happen. Welterweights, Randy Brown and Wellington Terman. Um... Yeah, Brown had a four-fight winning streak snapped when he ran into Jack Telemadalena, and JDM JDM ran him over pretty good. Uh, Terman's a guy, there's a lot, he's intermittently had buzz, but he's never, he's got a losing UFC record. Yeah, I think I'm going with Brown, but... Again, Terman's one of the... Let me tell you what Terman is. Terman's one of those guys that everyone who's worked with him and trained with him sings his praises, but he kind of struggles to put it together in the cage. Uh, lightweights, Mateusz Rambeski and Loki Rajabov. Uh, let's see here. I gotta double-check this one. Um, Rambeski had a pretty surprising win in his UFC debut. Uh, when he beat Nick Fiore, that was a bonkers fight. 
Um, he fought like a bat out of hell. He's on a what overall winning streak? Overall record minus three. So 14 in a row. That's nothing to sneeze at. Uh, Loic Rajabov. Uh, yeah, this was our—I believe this was our first uh, Tajikistan fighter in the UFC. Because uh, he won. I want to say it was him. Anyway, he beat uh, Esteban Rybovich, um earlier this year. Uh, he's only lost recently. Let's see. Eh. Yeah, again, he's won his last two. I think I'm going to lean towards Rembeshki here. Uh, but that fight, that could be a little crazy. Circle that one if you're looking for sleepers, like sleeper fights to watch. Uh, that one might be there. Strawweight, Tabitha Ricci and Jillian Robertson. Bit of a step up for Ricci here. Uh, she's never lost at strawweight. Coming off a win over Jessica Penne, she's got a really good jiu-jitsu background. And Robertson will accommodate her in that respect. Uh, I don't know. It's a little bit tougher than you might think. Um, let me lean towards Ricci, but no, I'm going to lean towards Robertson. Here's why. Robertson is more willing to inflict harm. Uh, like she's got nasty, I don't know. This really might come down to who gets takedowns. Robertson's got some nasty elbows when she lets them go. Ricci's probably a little bit Got a little bit more power on the feet, though. Yeah, actually, I think I am going to lean towards Ricci, but I don't know. That's a fairly well-matched fight. Lightweights, Trevor Peak and Jose Mariscal. Mariscal? All right, what do we got here? I believe two debutantes. Uh, no, Peak's fought in the UFC before. When? February. Which event was that, out of idle curiosity? Uh, Crank 11 Span. Okay. That explain why I don't remember it. I don't remember much about that card. Um, Peak has had a couple of fights fall through. Uh, Mariscal, I believe this is his debut. Yes. Won his last three. His losses are troubling, though. Losses to Joe Anderson Brito, Steve Garcia, Sean Soriano, Gregor Gillespie, Bryce Mitchell. Jeez. Like, the guys he's lost to, I know. Um, let's lean towards peak, but I'm not sure about that. Let's see. Featherweight, Jamal Emmers and Jack Jenkins. Emmers. Been up and down in the UFC, 2-2. Two and two. Uh, Losses to Giga Chikadze and Pat Sabatini. 
Wins over Vince Cachero and Husseini Oskarbov. Not terribly. I mean... Like, the two he's lost to are two good fighters, and the two guys he beat are guys maybe barely UFC caliber, so that doesn't actually tell you a whole lot. Jenkins, 11-2. and two. One is UFC debut. Um, he actually looked pretty good in that fight that he won on the uh, 284 card. He's on a good overall winning streak, actually. What, three, six, yeah, eight fights in a row. That is nothing to sneeze at, as the f phrase goes. I actually do think I'm going to lean towards Jenkins here just a bit. And kicking everything off because the UFC hates flyweights, Tatsuro Taira and Clidson Rodriguez. Uh, if you listen to this show for any length of time, you know I have been expounding the uh, <laughs> the potential of Tatsuro Taira for a, a little bit here. Uh, I don't mean to say that Clinton Rodriguez is some kind of bum. He is most certainly not. But I I have no problem picking Tyra here. Uh, just put it like that. So that's the event. Saturday morning. Uh, come see me over in the MMAZona411mania.com. And I'll have you covered start to finish. Alrighty, let us move on. Because we have to talk about Conor McGregor, don't we? Alright. So, Conor McGregor. I mentioned this last week, actually, um, I think a little bit, that he was... Um, he was involved in a skit at doing a timeout or a commercial break for game four or five of the NBA Finals. I forget which game. Forgive me. I haven't watched a lot of basketball. Uh, they were in Miami. And uh, he, was, he was in a skit where he punched out the mascot and then he like did a follow-up punch that looked like it was, I think, was unplanned and kind of caught the guy in the costume off guard. But, it's just a stupid little thing. doesn't actually matter that much. What matters is, now in the wake of that event, uh, someone came out and alleged that Conor McGregor sexually assaulted her at this basketball game. Okay. She also claimed that the Miami Heat, the like building security, was complicit in this. And so, long story short, here, um, the when you accuse the not just people get this wrong all the time, like. The team, like the organization for the Miami Heat, is, it's not just the team. It's not just the players. It's not even just the coaches. There's the coaches, the trainers, 
equipment managers, building staff, maintenance, security, like all that falls under the umbrella of, of the ownership of the team. When you accuse an organization like that of something, pretty, they're going to look into it very seriously. So the Miami Heat are looking into these allegations. The NBA is now going to look into them because you've accused one of their relatively major franchises of serious issues. So they're going to look into this. So you've, there's a lot going on here. And a lot of different parties are going to be looking into this. There was a lot of security there. This is an NBA Finals game. There was a lot of cameras. One of them caught what appears to be the following. You can find the video online. TMZ had it. Pretty much any MMA site is going to have it up. So if you want to go find the video for yourself, please do. That shows Connor in a VIP area, very crowded. Uh, He goes up and he takes a woman by the hand and leads her into the this private area restroom and a lot of people around this is not a private act this is not you know the back alley of some a lot of people saw this apparently there were a lot of people present certainly the video evidence shows that inconclusively or conclusively rather sorry excuse me so here's again here's also kind of the problem Some of the reaction to this has been as follows. Um, well, the last the last bit of um, information related to this before I get into my opinion. Seems there's other video of Connor and the alleged victim out at a club together after the game, so hours after the alleged incident took place. I am not going to comment on the veracity of the allegations. There is nowhere near enough evidence for me to draw anything approximating a reasonable conclusion. I'm going to leave that aside for the moment. So, let's talk about Connor for just a second here. Would Without levying my own opinion, would anyone be surprised if Connor was guilty of the accusations? At this point, you can't be surprised given his track record. He's been accused of some form of sexual assault twice before. Then there was that incident on the yacht where a woman had to flee Like, this guy is a little off the rails. Now, so, now, look, McGregor denies any impropriety took place. In fact, his lawyer indicated that they view this as a shakedown. Here's my other thing about this. Are wealthy, famous personalities, targets for false accusations, in it, like for, again, for shakedowns like this, allegedly like this. Yeah, they are. There's no two ways about that. If you are, a, if you are wealthy, 
and if you are famous, there are going to be people out there trying to get you into a position to make you part with your money. That's just how it is. I don't know that that's what happened here. There's a very easy way for Connor to have avoided this entire thing, mind you. And it goes a little bit as follows. You're married with a child. What are you doing taking a random woman into a bathroom with you? Like, that? you only do that for one thing. Right? Even if no crime was committed by Conor McGregor, if we step off to the world where, into the reality where this is a spurious accusation brought on by nothing but greed, not saying I think that's what happened, but let's live in that world for just a second. My man, you opened yourself up to this. You did this, you should not put yourself in this position. And I try real hard not to preach at you guys here. I have my worldview, I have my religious beliefs, and you have yours. And I, again, my, to the extent that my religious outlook on life is relevant to what we're discussing, it occasionally comes up. For the most part, it's not relevant to the discussion. So when I say that I take a very, when I say I take a dim view of extramarital conduct in this respect, yeah, that that's my religious sensibilities talking. And that said, you also have to have some sense of risk management here at some point just for your personal well-being. You know, um... I forget who it was. Forgive me. There was a politician a few years ago. This might actually have been Pence. Former Vice President Mike Pence. It might have been him. Don't quote me on this. I forget who's, I forget the context here, and I forget, who, well, I forget who said it. But there was a relatively prominent politician here in the United States who said, I won't even have dinner with a... I wouldn't even have solo dinner with another woman who is not my wife. Uh, unless, so, unless someone else, like, if I'm out and I have dinner with, if there's another woman that is not my wife, my wife is present, or, like, I think that was the, that was the gist of it. Like, my wife is there. And he got mocked for this. I recall this vividly. I recall vividly that this individual, and again, I want to say it was Pence, but I'm, it might not have been, so forgive me if I'm misremembering who said it. Like, the more I think about it, the more I think it wasn't him, and it was just, it doesn't matter. It's the sentiment I'm talking about. He was mocked for this, um, pretty thoroughly. And this was a little bit before, I want to say this was a little bit before the Me Too breakout, Right? It's amazing to me how many people will mock and belittle values and standards that they consider pointless 
old-fashioned, whatever, until they are forcibly reminded of why those exist. It's all well and good. Look, man, am I saying that every married man who ever has a has dinner with a woman other than his wife is somehow violating the vows of marriage? No, I'm not. No reasonable person is. But, this is just the but here, man. And it's for the record, like, I, I don't think it's, I, do I personally find that standard a little on the, yeah, extreme side for my taste? Yeah, yeah, I do. Not how I, not how I would live my life in all probability. Not married yet, would like to be someday. And if I ultimately decide that that's, if my wife and I were to decide that that's, you know, the most reasonable thing for both of us to do as far as the standard goes, then so be it. But you know, at the moment, sitting here, do I think, you know, not being able to just have a friendly dinner with a female friend, is that a little bit weird? Yeah, I, I do. I think that's, that's a little bit, yeah, a little off too far on that side for me. Thanks. But... Even if you think that's slightly weird and, well, you should, or whatever, consider the fact that it more or less completely inoculates you from this kind of thing. If you're... I mean, that, when I say this kind of thing, there's an implication there that this is, again, somewhat fraudulent, somewhat a shakedown, I don't know that to be the case. Uh, given Connor's history, it would not shock me if he did commit some kind of inappropriate borderline illegal act, or actually illegal act. So when I say it inoculates you against this, that if you did nothing wrong, then having another witness there with you will largely settle this issue. Connor choosing to engage somewhat random individuals for, again, if you, as a man, especially in like a VIP setting, take a woman into the bathroom with you, you're either buying drugs and you don't want to do it out in public, or there's some kind of sexual encounter happening. There's not really a lot of in-between here. Like, that's kind of it. That's what, that's the intent. That's what's gonna happen. And one of the other reactions to all this that I found a little bit interesting, and this is just perspective difference. I saw this on Twitter, I forget who said it, so forgive me, but the gist of this was, after the video came out, it was like, men... So he didn't force her. Women. Why is he engaging in extramarital activities, sexual activities? Let me just phrase... Let me, let me just state this for the record. The vast majority of men take a very dim view of sexual assault. The vast majority of us. We do... Uh, ask men about it, and you'll get a pretty uniform response. 
most of us have very, very strong feelings about people who do this kind of thing. And they're not good feelings. But we are also, men in general, I'm going to speak broadly, cognizant of legal ramifications for saying, for, for being, for the accusation at play. You say, so-and-so assaulted me. We take that seriously, but we do need evidence. And that has to be settled. The, the legal side of this thing, more or less, has to be settled before we look at the purely ethical or moral side of things. Look, because extramarital sexual contact is... I, I take a dim view of it personally. My religion takes a pretty dim view of it. I, but I'm not here to preach. And it's not illegal. It's not, sorry, people. It's not illegal to cheat on your spouse. I think it's icky at a bare minimum. I think it's, again, there's moral issues. I think it contributes to the decay of society. I, it, I'll rant at you if you want about why I think this is a, that's a bad thing to do. It is not illegal. It is not assault or sexual assault or rape or and I have to kind of separate those by degrees because rape is sexual assault but not necessarily all sexual assault is rape and then there's some people who just uh, struggle with the differentiation between well, I, again man I take a very dim view of sexual assault I think it's one of the worst things a human being can do to another human being period and that's that's part of the reason I think a lot of men are very like especially if it's not anyone we know like if there's not an emotional response to it as on an individual level we want to be sure and then once we're sure, like we will, we'll stomp you into the ground potentially if necessary. Like that's just how men are, good men at least. But we do have to kind of be sure about this. And again, like, well, that was sexual assault. Well, can you be a little more specific because we've reached a point in the use of that phrase where it mean it can mean a whole lot of different things. Everything from again violent rape to there were people claiming that like I had bad sex and I regret it or there was a school of thought for a little bit that I don't know if this is still prevalent a man like leaning initiating a kiss like not even not forcing the kiss but like leaning in to initiate the motion and then even stopping if you say stop it like it's still a version of sexual assault and like none of most rational people, I would like to think, would understand these are not the same thing. I'm not saying that having someone lean in for a kiss that they don't, that you don't want, isn't uncomfortable. I don't know. No one's ever tried to kiss me under those circumstances. But that is not, especially if they, if you say stop or what are you doing, and they actually stop, and like, if that boundary is respected, you really kind of weren't assaulted. I don't know. My opinion, which is worth, you know, not much. But that's not the same as, you know, rape. It's not. 
Sorry. And it just, so again, men are just like, okay, if she's going willingly with him into the bathroom, that doesn't mean that this still couldn't have turned violent and ugly. It does set something of a tone, though, does it not? And th that's really all that's being kind of hashed out there. And I think women are more, broadly speaking, more able to go from, you know, potential assaulter to we disagree with his behavior without settling the first. Like the, the connective jump between those two points, especially about someone you don't like, is made relatively quickly. I think you'd find most men also take a fairly negative view on cheating on your spouse. In this case, it would be wife. But again, we don't view it the same as some form of legitimate sexual assault. And that needs to be settled before, for most of us, settle that. Then we'll talk about, no, you really shouldn't cheat on your wife. But, again, it's Connor just makes bad decisions at this point, man. Again, even if he is completely innocent of everything other than the immoral and, I would argue, unethical act of infidelity, you still are exposing yourself to this. Like, again, assume for just a second that this is nothing, like, their encounter was purely consensual, and then she basically said, pay me off or I cry rape. The fact that you were willing to put yourself in that position to begin with speaks volumes about your very, 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 very bad decision-making. Sir, please stop. Um, so this is going to get investigated. We're going to find out what happens. Um... Connor has now passed the point by which he must have entered the USADA testing pool if he wanted to fight at all for the UFC in 2023, unless, of course, they gave him an exemption, which the UFC can do willy-nilly, so who the heck knows. But at this point, I would go so far as to say if Connor comes back to fight for the UFC, he will not be fighting Michael Chandler. Um, that seems relatively clear at this point. And look, if... If Connor did assault this woman, criminal charges coming up wouldn't be out of the question. Again, if he if there was a crime that took place, the police should be involved. He should be prosecuted. I full stop. I don't think people who do that should be part of society. Sue me. Uh, but we don't know what so we don't know what's up with Connor exactly going forward. Um, he has once again found himself in a spot of PR and legal potentially legal trouble. We'll have to see what happens. But again, I feel pretty con well. Two things about this that I feel very confident about. One, the UFC is not going to say or do anything other than we're going to let law enforcement and the other entities do what they're going to do, and we'll see what happens because this is all the only thing they ever do. Two, ESPN isn't going to do anything. Uh, and I mean anything. They're just going to keep airing The Ultimate Fighter with him on it. 
Might even hope that his uh, name being more out in public gives it a ratings bump because nobody cares about the show. That's for darn sure. Uh, and if he wants to fight again for the UFC, they will let him. And yeah. once again, let me just very briefly, everyone. If you are looking to... How do I phrase this? You know, this is not a this is not something I can say without elements of my religious belief kind of bleeding into it. So the following is advice from a religious person. Feel free to disregard. If you are looking to any worldly entity for worldview, morality, whatever, you will be sorely, catastrophically disappointed over and over and over and over and over again. There's people out there... I saw so, I saw this on Twitter the other day. Like, if you're not a Dana White fan, you're not an MMA fan. Like, get... How much of the Kool-Aid have you been drinking, my man? Because, uh... Put that down. Businesses are not moral entities. This does not mean that there aren't businesses that conduct themselves in a more moral way than others. It means they are not moral entities. Fight promoters, movie studios, comic books, whatever. None of these things are moral entities. They will never guide you to happiness. So if you're looking for the UFC or ESPN or whoever to do the right thing, you're going to be disappointed. Every time in all of them. Please stop. For your own mental well-being, please stop pretending that these conglomerations of power and money on in the earthly sense will provide you anything approximating eternal happiness. They won't. They just won't. All right, on that note, um, anything else I wanted to say about that? I don't think so. It's, it's a bad spot, man. It's gross. And... We'll just have to see what happens. The allegation has been made. Lawyers are involved. Investigations are being had. And I only talked about it because that's... I don't like talking about Connor. It's easy to talk about him like every week as part of the news cycle. I don't like doing that because most of the stuff he does I don't care about. That said, like this is a relatively newsworthy incident. So it, I felt... Like, I should talk about it a little bit. I don't know. All right, let's move on, shall we? We don't want to be here for too much longer. So, to somewhat counteract the news of Connor, the UFC announced several fights. Some of which I like, some of which, yeah. Um, big one for the UFC's return to Singapore, UFC on ESPN 50 later this year. Main event of Max Holloway and the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung. 
I have ethical concerns about putting the Korean zombie in the cage with Max Holloway at this point. I have seen the zombie take some pretty hellacious beatings. He's over it. He's past his prime. And Max Holloway is going to do bad things to him. My sort of caveat to this, and I said this when uh, the zombie said I want to fight Max Holloway. Chan Sung Jung has fought two of the three greatest featherweights of all time. He has fought Jose Aldo for the title and lost. He fought Alexander Volkanovsky for the title and lost. The only, and I don't count Connor as an all-time great featherweight, for the record. The only great featherweight that he hasn't fought is Max Holloway. And if he wants his retirement fight to be getting in the cage with the other best that he has not yet shared the cage with, I don't like it. I'd rather not see this guy who I've enjoyed a lot of his fights. I'd rather not see him take life-altering damage again. But if this really is his last one and he just kind of wants to check off the last greatest of box that he hasn't yet... I can I can understand. I may not be happy the happiest about it, but I can understand it. So moving on from a fight I'm dubious on in some respects to a fight I wholeheartedly endorse. UFC on ESPN plus 84, main event, Corey Sandhagen and Umar Nurmagomedov. Yes. Hook that directly into my veins. Oh, that's a great fight. Big step up for Umar, who has looked every bit the future champion. Sandhagen trying to get another crack at the belt. Sandhagen's a beast. Love that fight. Can't wait for it. Mm, good fight. And I think the last one they announced uh, for Fran- the return to France. UFC on ESPN 51 will be headlined by Cyril Gaon and Sergei Spivak. Fine enough fight. Gone main evented the uh, the debut in France, if you recall. Crazy fight. That was his fight with uh, Tai Tuivasa. I think it was like the middle of the second round. The crowd just spontaneously sang the French national anthem. Wild, wild scene. Uh, Gone and Spivak's a fine fight. So we'll... I don't object to that one. Full card later to come out. Uh, any other fights that kind of got announced recently? Let me just scan real fast here. Um, UFC on ESPN 49, headlined by Vicente Luque and Rafael Dos Anjos. Fine. I'm not jumping up and down, but fine. Uh, I may have touched on this earlier. If not, I'm going to... Uh, this will be a first time. If the, I have, then I'm going to touch on it again. The UFC will be back in London, July 22nd. Main event, Tom Aspinall returning from that injury he suffered to take on Marching Tabora. Don't hate that. It's actually a decent card. As I look up and down. Paul Craig making his middleweight debut. That's something. And that's, that's not the worst card I've ever seen. They have to sell tickets to that one, so of course they put forth effort. Uh, at the moment, it still seems like Sterling and O'Malley is on for UFC 292, so I'm going to, at this point, I'm 
kind of going to call that announced. I feel like we would have had news by this point if something, if Sterling was going to have to pull out with the injury he was looking at. Um, we'll see it. We'll still keep an eye on that one to see if it changes. But at the moment, it looks like that's going to happen. Uh, and did 293. No, we don't have much for that. We know it's going to be in Sydney, but we don't have too many uh, other stuff for him. How about... Uh, we only know the venue for that one. Uh, okay, yeah, I think that's it for the moment as far as announced fights. So let me check Twitter, see if anything crazy is broken. If not, we will do plugs and get out of here for the week. Nope. Okay, so plugs. What do we get this week? This week... Uh, let's see. Last week there was a review for Transformers: Rise of the Beasts, featuring myself, Mark Radulich, and we were supposed to have Jason Teasley. Didn't happen. He had stuff come up. Um, instead, we had David Wright join us. So the three of us got together and talked about that movie, the Transformers franchise, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the usual damn you Hollywood stuff. This Tuesday, you'd think we'd be reviewing the Flash, but we're not. You see, originally. Pixar's Elemental came out, was the only thing coming out this week, so that's what Mark had on the schedule. The Flash was originally supposed to debut next week. They pushed it back to this week, and Mark crossed his arms and pouted and said, I'm not changing the schedule. It's Elemental this week, The Flash the next week, and that's that. So that's what we're doing. We are doing Elemental this week, and The Flash next week, and depressing our numbers for Mark's tantrum. I suppose. I can talk crap about him here because I know he doesn't listen to this show. Uh, so that's what we're doing. Elemental this week. Flash the week after that. So yeah, be on the lookout for that in my other podcasting stuff. Uh, that's all I've got this week is Elemental, so that'll be fun. Seems to be getting good reviews. Unfortunately, Pixar's brand is severely damaged and... Uh, if it's fair to complain about the Marvel formula, and it is, it's fair to complain about the Pixar formula. And Pixar's become more than a little formulaic at this point. Um, also this week, my usual spate of coverage, MLW Fusion will be up on Thursday, WWE Smackdown on Friday, UFC events Saturday morning, and yeah, that's what I got. You might occasionally find me other places. Um, again, sometimes I get called to cover other things. We just have to see how that goes. But that's the stuff I'm scheduled for. All right, we will be back here next week to review UFC on, e on ABC5, and we will preview uh, UFC on ESPN4. Will we? Hang on. Uh, yes, sorry. Math was off there when I saw the dates. And yes, we will be previewing UFC on ESPN 48. Sean Strickland versus Abu Sapien Magomedov. Also on that card, in theory, Demiris Magulov's final fight. He'll take on Grant Dawson. What else do we got there? Anything really good? I don't hate the main event. It's weird matchmaking, but I don't hate it. I like Ishmagulov. I'm sad he's going away. Um... Yeah, this is this is not a card that's going to 
stand out. Yeah, this is um, this is very much a C level. Letter C, not C, not like body of water C. Because C level cane was a thing for a while, remember? <laughs> I bet there's a bunch of you who don't get that joke. I'm old and I've been doing this for way too long. Anyway, it's a it's a third tier card. Gonna call it like I see it, folks. But we'll preview it next week, so hopefully you'll be back. Until then, thank you as always. I appreciate the heck out of you. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.